what's happening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reefum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So, today I have the pleasure of welcoming back Fan Thane from Tidal Gardens. What's going on there, Than? Not much. Just hanging in. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah. Awesome to have you back on. So, um, <clears throat> just a real quick um, about Than. He is the founder and owner of Tidal Gardens a coral reef aquaculture business that's located in Copley, Ohio. He is also an author and contributor to several reef-keeping industry publications. Is that still uh, true, Than? Or not so much uh, anymore? Less less now than than ever, but uh, occasionally every every now and again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so besides uh, being a passionate entrepreneur, Than is a licensed attorney, has a master's in business administration, and a juris doctor from the University of Akron and a Bachelor of Science in Biology from the University of Michigan. But before we start chatting with Than, I want to thank the sponsors for this show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate them supporting the live stream. And I also appreciate all you folks out there that have been tuning in and are tuning in right now. Um, good number of folks I see are already in the, uh, in the stream. As uh, always, if you wouldn't mind hitting that like button so more people can find us, that would be awesome. And while you're at it, subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. And uh, please feel free to uh, drop some comments and questions in the chat. I see there's a whole bunch uh, already in there. We'll sift through this stuff and try to incorporate as much as possible in terms of the, uh, the questions and the comments. Um, <laughs> Sean Clark, Van is my spirit animal. That one caught my eye. <laughs> I try. I try. Um, so what's happening, though, folks? All right, great. So, uh, Dan, what's uh, what's going on? What's uh, what's new in uh, Tidal Gardens these days? Not a whole ton that's new. It's a bunch of little things, I would say. So, I've started to build this building about four years ago, and I've been pretty much the entire time doing project management. And we're finally to a point where I don't actually have to do any more projects because the thing is like more or less up and running. And we are just finishing up the, the existing projects that are in the queue. But it's a really hard habit to break after four years to not stack more projects into the queue to follow it up. So I've, I've been struggling with just staying pat and just getting done with whatever we need to get done with. All the little things, just polish it up and then leave it and just relax. Because all I do now is I just think of more projects to do. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a uh, you know a, a thing we all, I guess all reef keepers kind of fall into in terms of projects popping up, but you have a, um, you know, a beautiful facility there. So were all these projects kind of like on the original project list or did like many of them just pop up after, uh, no, no. So a, a lot of the projects. Uh, so now I guess we're getting into some really extravagant stuff that has no business case whatsoever behind it. <laughs> like it's just it is just uh, it's wasteful to some degree, but it is in service of trying to build a building and a place of work that I actually want to work in. Yeah. So it's not completely like worthless, but it's it's extravagant. Uh, the other stuff that that we're starting to do is reworking stuff that's already working and 
trying to make that aspect better for some reason. So, for example, um, I'm looking to redo certain aspects of our heating and cooling systems for our aquariums. Right now, it technically works fine. It's robust, it does work, but there's ways that I think that we could you know, squeeze out a lot more efficiency, both space and energy, and there are ways that we could greatly increase capacity. Um, so for example, we have a geothermal cooling system yep. where we are basically, you know, we're collecting rainwater and we're running heat exchangers in the rainwater that we've collected to, in the summertime, bring down the temperature of the tanks. It works kinda. As we're adding more tanks, obviously we're losing, you know, the capacity for cooling. So a huge project potentially that we've been talking with the plumber for now maybe two and a half, three years <laughs> is to increase the, the cooling capacity of the geothermal system um, many times over. So we would have something like 20 tons of cooling or something like that. Basically, with all of our same existing infrastructure, with just a bigger uh, section of geothermal pipe, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so uh, long story short there, I think that it might be like six kilometers of, of tubing underground Whoa. or something like that. So yeah. the, the, uh, the end game would be to be able to um, save a lot of money, I'm assuming, in terms of electricity costs, just having very efficient uh, heating and cooling systems. Yeah, I think that the first thing that we have to look at beyond uh, just like electrical efficiency is just like capacity. So when it's 100 degrees outside, I want to be able to pull the tank temperatures down into like the low 70s if I wanted to. Well, that sort of thing. It's like, oh, you have a, basically like a 30 degree delta on thousands of gallons of salt water. Don't care. We have the capacity. We're going to bring it all the way down if we wanted to. Uh, like that sort of thing. Just being able to like just brute force past these types of issues that pop up. That, um, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive because um, to be able to, to, to cool. I mean, so how how um, how often are you cooling your, um, your your tanks in the in the summertime? You know, I mean, does does the um, I'm, I'm assuming that you've got quite the uh, the cooling system in the in the building itself. And that's probably doing the majority of the cooling in terms of the tanks. Yeah. So so there's two buildings, right? So there's the greenhouse, which is really the, the culprit as far as uh, needing the most in the way of cooling. And there, it's a combination of a whole bunch of things. So it's a bunch of different types of exhaust fans, things of that sort. There's the geothermal cooling system. There's whirlybird rooftop vents that, that allow a lot of like the, the heat that accumulates at the top of the building to get out. And this past summer, I actually spray painted the entire, well, spray painted, I rolled <laughs> um, epoxy on the entire greenhouse. And that cut down so much on just like the thermal load of that building that that helped out tremendously. So the next big step would be the, um, the expansion of the geothermal capacity underground. And at that point, I'm pretty confident that we could do a whole lot of cooling. And then after that, we can look into um, more efficient heat exchangers in and of themselves. So like going to titanium rather than we're currently using PEX, which is, doesn't have like the coefficient that we're really looking for. But, you know, titanium is super expensive and, you know, it's, it's just another thing. So um, 
Yeah. What? So this is like a this is a corny interview question, but where do you see uh, you guys in like five years in, in terms of Title Gardens? Is is it more expansion in the plan, or is the greenhouse going to get a complete overhaul and replaced by something similar to the uh, to the to the new facility? So the, there's no plans to to do any huge huge change with the greenhouse as a as a, as a building, um, mainly because we couldn't we can't empty it in order to do construction, I guess. Uh, like that, that's the biggest hurdle. Mm. Uh, when, whenever we have like a huge sale, for example, like a big customer might come and they might like fill an entire truck, like a distributor level, not just yeah. like, oh, it's a local fish store or somebody doing tank maintenance. It has to be like a wholesale distributor level customer comes in, fills up a truck. And most of it will come out of the greenhouse and when they leave, there's no evidence that they were even there. <laughs> and so for us to be able to like shut down that many systems, move all that coral somewhere, don't know where, uh, and then do a construction project over many months, like I, I don't even know. And I just tell my guys, like, sell everything in this building. And they're like, we try. <laughs> it's, it keeps growing. It's still here. So it's, it's like that. Uh, here's an interesting question from um, Andy uh, Boma. <clears throat> what do you do if a pipe breaks underground? What do you do if a pipe breaks underground? So or, or if we're talking like a geothermal loop, um, that would be really, 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 really difficult to break. Um, like really difficult. Because if you've ever like handled uh, like, like three-quarter inch pecs, I don't even know what it would take. Mm. But if you do have a leak in that geothermal line, then yeah, you're probably gonna have to dig up the entire thing and redo it. And that would not be a good thing in the wintertime, I would assume. Uh, meaning like a, like a break in the winter? Yeah. Yeah, just shut it off and then deal with it, you know, when you can actually excavate. Yeah. But no, that would be really, really, really bad. But we've, we've had that type of PEX tubing, and in fact, much higher quality PEX has been installed since. On our on all of our new projects, but even like the bad pecs, quote unquote, we've had underground there for 25 years, and it's been like fine, and we still use it. So, um, talking about projects, what um, what projects do you have that you just keep putting off and putting off and putting off? The projects that you just dread doing. The projects that I dread doing. Because <laughs> um, I have some. <laughs> Well, well, we'll get to yours in a sec because I'm actually curious to hear because I'm very gung ho about projects. It's usually not me that's the one that doesn't want to do it. Ah. So, so obviously the geothermal one, uh, having been put on the back burner by the plumber for three years now, that's probably one that's been, you know, dreaded. Yeah. Uh, but as far as like stuff that I want to get done, oh yeah, here's one. So we are in the process, very slow process, of redoing our closed loop systems. Mm. Okay? Our closed loops work just fine, but some of the pumps are not optimized for running in a closed loop configuration, so they need a lot more hand-holding and a lot more maintenance, and sometimes they need to get swapped out. and. We don't like to spend that much time babysitting 
closed loop pumps, especially when we have, you know, 20 some odd closed loops. Yeah. So what we're doing slowly is replacing pumps with a biz A 400s and we need a dozen of them. Wow. I don't want to pay for a dozen (laughs) A 400s right now. So that's something that I'm actually dreading. Not because I don't want it done because I just don't want to pay for, yeah, I just don't want to pay for double digit abysses. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even at the wholesale level, it's like, that looks like a retail number <laughs> when, when you're looking at a biz. That's a, that's a, that's, that sounds like a crazy number there, Finn. Yeah, my, a, um, my, my project that, um, well, <clears throat> so, you know, I've, I've done a lot of um, plumbing with PVC pipe in my, my two systems. And, and um, so what we're talking about this before the live stream, I've kind of like got one, one, of, one of my systems is sort of like a Frankenstein setup because I initially set it up as a display tank, 187 gallon display tank and a 75 gallon frag tank that's plumbed into it with a, um, a 74 gallon um, dream box, real exclusive uh, dream box. But since uh, you know I put installed all the, uh, the piping and, and the tanks, I've added another 50 gallon frag tank, I've added a cryptic sump. Uh, what else have I added on there? I've, I've, I've done a whole bunch of stuff to alter the plumbing to fit in all those other tanks and other pieces of equipment. and um, so there's a lot of uh, elbows and unions and valves in there, but you know I made the mistake of using some cheaper valves when I did this stuff. And uh, over time, um, one of the main valves has uh, has broken, and it's it's a very complicated process in terms of cutting out that section of the plumbing with the valve in it because it it impacts you know uh, at least. Uh, you know, one of the frag tanks and, and it, uh, it impacts, uh, two of the drains going into the dream box. It's freaking complicated, man. And, um, I just, um, I, you know, I'm kind of like letting it ride to see if it, uh, <laughs> to, to see how it works and whether or not I really, really, really need to do this thing. But I, I know eventually I'm going to have to do that. And I got a, another broken, um, valve in, in my, um, my water, uh, changing system, but that's in a, a 50 gallon drum that has uh, salt water in it. So, I guess my tip to folks out there that are watching is don't cheap out on um, plumbing, right? I think um, especially valves, because if you buy like those um, cheap, like white uh, with the red handle or the blue handle uh, valves, they will eventually fail if you use them a lot. That's what I've uh, found at least. There's a, there's a couple things. I think that pretty much most valves after some time will go bad. Um, so be prepared to to occasionally service them. Sometimes I like to put unions on each side of a valve, yeah. that or, or or buy a true union ball valve, for example, yes. that has it all built in. But there's like no such thing as a true union gate valve that I know of. So anyway, be able to take a valve out and service it. Stuff grows on valves, things like that. And people also don't know this, but um, you actually have to use the valve every now and again. So if you just have, yeah. happen to have like valves that are open all the time for four years and you go to close it for the first time, you might be in for a surprise. Um, the other thing that I would probably suggest, and this might even apply to your project more than anything, is that I think sometimes um, when a, a project gets ultra complex, um, I think that we get into this mindset where we get really clever where one t- one length of plumbing does four things. Yeah. And it, and when something goes wrong at that stage, 
it the, the the problems then spider out. So now what I'm trying to do is like simplify my plumbing. Sure, this can be done more efficiently to do X, Y, and Z different tasks. But no, I want one set of plumbing to do task one, one set of plumbing to do task two, one set of plumbing to do task three. So when there's a when there's an issue in the number two line, it is just isolated to the number two line, even though it essentially triples the cost of it because you're 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 duplicating what could probably have been combined but when it comes time to do maintenance on that that's when it really pays off yeah um sean clark spears plumbing or bust i i agree with that spears is um makes some great stuff some high qualities of some i mean some of the uh you know like the uh you mentioned the uh, the um, the union ball valves I mean, that's not cheap stuff you know when you get into the um oh bigger spears is expensive like a, like a true union ball valve from spears uh inch and a half is probably like 40 50 dollars yeah um spears like a t like a schedule 80 inch and a half t right now is ten dollars or something no it might be even more it might be like 15 dollars like so it, it's 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 stunning how expensive uh pvc is yeah and 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 the the new facility you're pretty much all schedule 80 with that at least that's what you could see in terms of what's out in the uh, yeah right in that. yeah most of it's schedule eighty, so the reason why I went with schedule eighty and because because this is this is stuff that always comes up right, somebody will always say you don't need it because you're not running any pressure rated right. applications right so there's no benefit going from schedule forty to schedule eighty, technically true, but the reason why I go to schedule eighty isn't for pressure rating because I don't think that pressure is a purchase decision or a purchase criteria for any of the plumbing we do in the, in, the, in the hobby. I mainly do it because it needs to survive when a ladder gets dropped on it. Like, mm. I have a staff. We do actual work all the time around these tanks. We have contractors here all the time. They routinely will trip over a pipe Ooh. that they should have seen, <laughs> that they installed, that sort of thing, you know? And like, because for, for years, this was like a, an open construction project. Part of the reason why we didn't have any um, customers allowed to even see the facility for like years, three years, nobody was allowed over, mm. partly because it was unsafe to be here. <laughs> yeah, when you have contractors tripping over their own stuff, it's probably going to be bad for a retail customer, right? So, yeah. so yeah, so the, but the thickness of the, of the pipe has to be very abuse resistant. Also, three years from now when I want to um, to send a snake down there and to really clean up all the all the buildup of, of critters because people really underestimate how much stuff can grow in pipes yeah. and block things up you have to snake it and I you know I want to make sure that like the the pipe is robust enough to, to handle all that are you worried about snaking a pipe and and um, you know um getting some stuff into the system that perhaps you might not want to get into the system in terms of uh, some bacteria that might have been collecting on those uh, inside of the pipes, you know, s some some stuff that um, could be, I don't know, potentially lead to, uh, to issues. I'm, I've never, you know, in all my years in terms of keeping uh, reef tanks, I've never snaked any of my return lines, drain lines, or anything. And, um, Either. you know, so I... I um, I've never heard of that before. That, that's uh, intriguing to me. Well, it, it's I think for for a home system that's sort of manageable. Yeah, it's probably not a big deal, right? 
but I literally have some aquariums that are 50 feet away from their sump. There's no other thing that I can do other than clean that. Yeah. Both the feed line and the return, right? The end of the big drains. So they have to be serviceable. They all have, um, what are those things called? Like basically ports where you can put a snake down in there. And now they make snakes that are like, uh, you can like hook it up to a, like a pressure washer. Oh, really? And yeah, so you just like set in like a 4,000 PSI pressure washer snake through that. And it has like all these different like angles and stuff like that. So yeah, you could just blow the hell out of anything that that's in there. That would be a project I would not be looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that my, my pipes are all clear. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right. So I noticed we got Andrew Sandler in, in the uh, in the chat there. What's up there, Andrew? Um, and that, that's a good uh, good segue because I was gonna. Um, you've been doing a lot of traveling the last uh, several months. I know on your YouTube channel you've you've documented documented your travels. You went to uh, Andrew Sandler's uh, place. You you went to uh, you visited uh, Jake. You know at, <laughs> at the Reef Builders uh, studio. You know there's a there's a whole bunch of people that you um, you visited and. Um, Let's let's so let's start with uh with Andrew's uh place and and I know you you did a whole video on it and those guys did a video on it in terms of but maybe people didn't see that what what kind of like stood out to you when you uh, when you walked in and saw that seventeen thousand gallon tank in a living room? Yeah, the the first thing that 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 hits that hits you at least what what immediately struck me was how the 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 media that you see online doesn't fully capture how big the tank is. And you see, you hear people say it, right? So like you should expect it, but what throws you off is just like how big the fish are. The, like the fish are absolutely enormous. They're just super-sized fish. So when you see video of the tank, you know, you kind of have like a mental image of like how big a yellow tank is. Yeah. You know, like three, four inches, right? But these the ones in, in in Andrew's tank are not three four inches. Nothing in the tank is three four inches. So oh. like so the tanks are all like twelve inches. So everything is like, like orders of magnitude bigger than what you're normally used to seeing. So when you're looking at this tank, and you're seeing these gigantic fish, and the tank is still looking gigantic, that that's when it all kind of hits you. Yeah, you know it it just doesn't seem real <clears throat> in in terms of that. Uh kind of display tank in a uh, in a home and, and just the um the fact that you know he's got two floors below that that house the equipment to run that tank and i guess other uh, tanks within the house is just um boggles the mind yeah it's it's certainly a lot of engineering that goes into it and that's it, it's good to see what um like really high-end industrial engineering applied to a tank like that or, or a system of tanks like that. Um, because there, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that we were doing in our systems and in our construction that mirrored what they did in theirs. And where we differed, that's where I, I found the most interesting. Like, for example, when we were talking earlier about heat exchange, like we did a very different kind of heat exchanger, and I actually liked the way that they did it better. Uh, the only problem on my end is that I would have to do it uh, eight different times. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, so I'm like, I, I don't love that, you know, yeah. that, that aspect. 
<laughs> but but yeah, but but getting like that that food for thought because a, a lot of this stuff it's you can't just pick up a book and oh here's the manual on, on how to do these like massive mega projects like just that's just not a thing and even in public aquarium land that's not really a thing a lot of that stuff is super custom and a lot of public aquariums out there are like really primitive compared to what andrew has put together like really primitive or even compared to like your and my regular home style aquarium, it's light years more advanced than sometimes what you see in like the professional public aquarium market. So yeah, it, to see how people have gone through the engineering and problem solving for some really big challenges is, is very always very interesting to me. Did, did um, that potentially plant the seed in your head to maybe go even bigger with a tank at some point down the road? Funny, uh, no. <laughs> you didn't want anything uh, to do with that, huh? No, it was okay. So, no, never. Because uh, I, I was even looking at, at my 600 gallon. I've, I've got two 600 gallon show tanks, and all I thought was like these two tanks are a pain in the butt. Like I don't know if I would ever want a 500 gallon tank or bigger ever again. Like, uh, so to, to want to put together like a really big show tank wouldn't be up my alley at all. Um, it's kind of funny. I was just thinking about just what we spend all of our time and attention on at Tidal Gardens. And there's like this hierarchy of stuff, right? And towards the bottom of this hierarchy are doing anything with the show tanks. They're the most neglected things ever. And possibly right around there, if not below that, is making YouTube videos, which is... <laughs> outrageously dumb on my part because i need to make more youtube videos but it always gets pushed down the the priority list but down there with making youtube videos is definitely doing anything at all with the show tanks really? so our show tanks are just big and kind of sad looking oh. <laughs> well, no they're, they're not sad looking they're not they're they're just big and it's just whatever. So hold on. Why, why, uh, why 600 gallons, 500 gallons? Why is that a pain in the ass? What, uh, what about that size tank do you find uh, more difficult than, let's say, a 200-gallon uh, reef tank? Um, so if the, the, the biggest thing is usually on these bigger tanks is the depth of them, like the top-to-bottom depth. Yeah. Basically, anything above 24 inches is going to be more and more and more problematic, like every single inch, right? So when you're talking like 36 inches – Good luck. Yeah, right? it's tough. <laughs> Good luck, especially for for a big tank that's that's super wide. If it's a four foot wide tank that's thirty six inches deep, you're going into that tank to do anything. Like you're you're climbing in. It's a huge huge pain <laughs> in the butt. Mine aren't even nearly that much of a pain in the butt. But uh, for example, like most people's uh, aquariums might be in the ballpark of like. 120, 200 gallons yeah. for a big home aquarium, yeah. right? The amount of time that you would take to spend to do any work in that, it's a lot, but it's manageable. But in a 600-gallon tank, you do that same amount of work, and it's like, man, nothing got done. <laughs> you know, It's like this tank just keeps on going. And the problem that I was trying to solve, let's say you're trying to solve like bubble algae by hand, which I don't know what you're doing that for in a 600, but let's say you are, right? It's almost like painting a bridge. By the time you're done painting the bridge, you have to start over at the beginning of the bridge and start painting it again. It's so much actual effort. Yeah, you know, I um, so you talked about like a 36-inch tall tank, and um, I've always had 
until my last tank, 24 inch tall tanks. And I've, I've, I've loved them, you know, been great. But my, my latest tank is a, a 20 inch tall tank. And I just really, really like that height a lot. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's six foot long by three foot wide and 20 inches tall. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's manageable in terms of getting to certain, you know, pretty much every spot in that tank. You know, if you've got a little step ladder, it could easily get to the middle and the, um, mm -hmm. to the bottom. So, um, but yeah, there's a big difference between 20 and 24. Oh, but it's, it's so cool. I, I really, um, I love it. And, and, um, I, I think I'm not sure I would ever do 24 again. I'm not, you know, but, um, wide, I think wide is like the, um, the most important thing though, with a, with a reef tank, the, the wider you go, I think the, uh, the aquascaping options just, just kind of like open up. So, um, but yeah, I would think that wide is very good for just the reason that you stated. I think the only pr uh, the only thing that I would add to that is like th that depth does unfortunately matter for how fish behave. Mm. Like I think that when you go shallower than 20, they get like extra neurotic swimming where, and I think that the, the deeper tanks for that purpose are, are really nice because you get much calmer, less neurotic fish I've, I've noticed. But I do like that 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 twenty inch tank. Like our newest set of five aquariums, they're all twenty inch, and it's it's really nice. And and those are uh, the purpose of those tanks are for um, for housing frags growing out. Hey, kitty. <laughs> She's been a menace the past couple of days. I'm so sleep deprived. Um, yeah. So that particular system is is kind of unique here. Because we are setting it up specifically for um, for selling, because we have you know multiple buildings. I want to kind of concentrate our our website inventory in one spot so that uh, shipping and packing kind of happens more in a more centralized yeah. location, and to have it be right there, right where we are dropping off our boxes at the front of our building, like all of that stuff just flows more nicely. So that system uh, is like the only one that's really not de dedicated to farming anything. It is simply a representation of what we have for sale. The um, the other thing I think with a uh, with a large five to six hundred gallon tank is that um, like you mentioned bubble algae or something. If you had some sort of I mean you had algae in one of those tanks, right? A whole bunch of uh, hair algae, and so mm -hmm. you know the um, the more traditional methods in terms of nutrient reduction in terms of manual removal of algae in a tank that size is um a lot of man hours right i mean it's it, it takes a lot of time you know bryopsis you got bryopsis you know popping up you know one way to remove bryopsis is manual removal or put some putty on top of it or what have you and for a tank that size you get a decent outbreak of whatever then um it's like multiplied 20 times Yes. And even when you are relying on um, herbivores to deal with a lot of your issues, and herbivores that actually would work. So, for example, fox faces do great with bubble algae. So we have two fox faces in that tank, and they can't keep up with some of the algae because mm. you're just asking two, you know, four or five inch fish to handle 600 gallons of, of aquascape. And it's like, yeah, sure, they, they eat it all the time. It helps, you know, but it's not like it's ever just going to go away. So, so so part of it is also just having like the 
the scale up of cleanup crew and and beneficial like fish and everything like that that would get the job done is a lot more than what people think. Yeah. So if you if you wanted to put in emerald emerald crabs, uh, think about twenty four for starters. <laughs> and then unfortunately, like we can't catch them all back when we want to then do like a treatment like interceptor or something. So it, it it becomes a it becomes a whole ordeal. Like there there's certain problems that. Um, yeah, there, there's really just no great solutions for at scale, right? Which is ironically my my talk at at a reef stock is going to be problem solving these sorts of things at scale. Oh, yeah, <laughs> with either big tanks or a collection of a ton of smaller tanks. Well, yeah, I was uh, I was going to kind of uh, dive a little deeper into that. Maybe we should uh, hold off on that topic. I don't want to. Uh... Oh, you're not stealing any thunder. It's not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> My talk is not done. So do you think that, um, do you think on, in, in that vein that with a larger tank that you're more prone to take shortcuts, uh, let's say using chemicals to solve an algae issue or, um, you know, things of that nature? I've never been a proponent of that. Never, ever. Right. This past year, I've been a lot more receptive to trying things. Okay. So in, in that particular system, we did run fluconazole to knock down a lot of like different algaes. I, honestly, I don't even actually care about bubble algae, but there's like this leafy green algae that I kind of want to eliminate. And so the fluconazole really did help with that. But fluconazole, it, which is, um, it, it's kind of like an anti-algae yeah. tre treatment. You run it for like a month or so, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, it kills the heck out of algae. But it also kind of messes with certain large polyp stony corals a little bit. But 90, 95% of all the other corals seem to be unaffected and fine, right? But certain things get kind of upset and then here and there, right? So I, I don't think that there's any like whole tank treatments that are altogether like perfect for anything, but they really can help. So like I said, we did fluconazole. We ran Interceptor. Uh, just because we were noticing like certain things on like our acros, but they weren't like red bugs and there weren't like the really, really, really bad black bugs or white bugs even. It was only under ultra super macro that you're seeing something there. And hmm. it's like, well, it's one of those things where like if you look, the, the deeper you look, the more you see, right? So it's like if you look at your eyebrows, eventually you're going to start seeing dust mites, you know? <laughs> That's just how it is. And so, like, at, at what point does it matter or not matter? And I'm like, well, who cares? Let's just bug bomb the whole tank anyway. Because it turns out that, you know, like, a certain um, just regular amphipods, like part of, like, cleanup crews and stuff like that, yeah. sometimes they bother corals. Right. Or, or something that, that, that just happens to make their little mucusy tunnel that collects detritus right next to a coral. Technically not a pest. What is bothering a coral? Like a lot of stuff bothers coral, right. right? So I'm thinking anything that's an arthropod dies in these systems. <laughs> and so we had to, you know, we had to like, you know, catch all the crabs, catch all the shrimp that we could, uh, best we could. Uh, and then we, we blasted with Interceptor. And we noticed like certain corals that we didn't even think had any problems. They were fine. The day after we did Interceptor, they're four times the size. Wow. Like bubble anemones were four times the size. And it's like, we thought that they were fine to begin with. It turns <laughs> out something was bugging anemones, apparently. 
because they're all ginormous now. Like like stuff like that. So now, um, and this is like such a, a hard separation between what like a professional coral farm does versus what like a hobbyist would do. Because this sort of extreme stuff isn't necessary for hobbyists. Like create like a very natural ecosystem thing that 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 is kind of like a nice biological microcosm, right? But there's some serious benefits at the commercial scale for a more laboratory-like approach, which might not be as robust biologically, but you have the control of, at any time, I can drop the interceptor nuke and kill anything that doesn't have, <laughs> that has that receptor in it, you know, that that, that it targets. So it, it's, so to answer your question, I'm more receptive to whole tank treatments now, even though I don't think that um, there's any like real perfect ones out there. So the uh, fluconazole, besides bryopsis, what what uh, what did the uh, fluconazole take out algae-wise? So actually, I didn't even have bryopsis. Oh. Like bryopsis is one of these. Okay, knock on wood. Everybody's got bryopsis. To... What are you talking about, man? <laughs> yeah, but okay. So you so okay. I I, I should go on a, off on a tangent, but. Stick to the plan, right? Bryopsis is one of those things that we simply don't struggle with. Really? Not that we shouldn't struggle with it. Mm. It's just, I would say that we have it. You might see one tiny patch once every three months in literally tens of thousands of gallons of reef aquariums here. We have other algae that we don't like. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Specifically, bryopsis isn't one of them. Uh, we typically are trying to get rid of a lot of the more macroalgae-ish stuff. So there's certain types of like red turf algae that we don't like. Yeah. There's certain types of like leafy green algae. I think it's all oh, 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 Yes, I've had that before. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, no, it's not good. Tangs like it. Certain tangs like it. Yeah, to a certain degree. But but that tank, for example, the like our big SPS show tank, the 600 gallon. Um, it had like a dozen tangs and two fox faces and they ate that stuff and it still outgrew their really? appetite. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Scale, you know, it's, it has its own issues. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. And, and I think, um, so I had, um, Jason Fox on the show, um, a couple of weeks ago and he, he mentioned the uh, fluconazole and, and he, um, I guess he said he used the, um, has used the reflux reflux. That's a, uh, I guess, a brand that um, is basically fluconazole, but it's like okay. a, it's like it's it's a uh, it's something that's uh, sold in the aquarium trade as a uh, specific treatment for um, rhabsis, I guess. Anyway, he mm-hmm. said that he only used um, like one tenth of the recommended dosage, and it um, absolutely cleared up the uh, rhabsis, which I thought was uh, was interesting. But do you uh, do you worry at all in terms of the collateral damage that um, something like that would do to the uh, bacterial population? Is that any uh, concern of your? Did you said you? I, I guess you said you did see some LPS or some SPS that um, weren't terribly thrilled with the treatment. Yeah, because you're always going to run into that. Almost with no, no matter what you do, something is not going to love that. Um, it's going to be like a, a very small minority, but it's always going to be something peculiar, like. For specifically favia or specifically micromusa or ganiopora or something like a lot of the full tank treatment stuff affects uh large polypstonies i would say more than sps more than acros um yeah again it's uh i think i, I consider them extreme treatments like yeah. i think that if you could 
not do them and still get the same results, right. go for it. Right. Like if, you, if you're if you're running like 30 gallon tanks and stuff like that, just get in there with a toothbrush. You'll be fine. Right. Right. 600 gallons. That's you're not yeah. So you're it. right. I mean, you're you're basically you got to You got to kind of like, you know, when you got that kind of scale, you have to kind of uh, at certain times do some things that you might not necessarily want to do if you had a 100 to 200 gallon display tank. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with some um, some some cyano. Uh, well, actually, it's I think it's green cyano on one of my display tanks. And mm. um, it's it's mostly on the sand bed, but it's also on the uh, on the rocks. I rebooted this tank, <clears throat> you know, a few months ago. So, you know, it um, the uh, it definitely was a, um, you know, a, a big deal in terms of upsetting the system. But anyway, you know, so the way I've been trying to tackle it is to do a lot of manual removal, siphoning the sand bed, cleaning the filter socks daily, trying to blow detritus, uh, you know, into the water column so the mechanical filtration can't get to it. You know, really just kind of rolling up the sleeves and using that good old-fashioned elbow grease to try to tackle the problem um, that way versus kind of like nuking the tank with perhaps like ChemiClean or something else. Yeah, that's a, that's a really challenging problem. Because it's a lot of it's really not um, it's not super obvious a good path to go. Like a lot of the stuff that sh that you would think should work doesn't always work that well. Yeah. Things like because because me I, I would always just revert to doing tons of water changes yes. and try to, like do like activated carbon more. But you know some I think some people advocate that it's it's low nutrient that makes it more powerful. And more explosive is when you get to like the, the really low nitrate and phosphate levels, um, and there, there's certain there's certain things that you would think that might help. Like you run running UV, maybe doesn't really do a whole lot. Do you run ozone? No, and uh, I know uh, I know you started running ozone, and, yeah. and uh, there was a couple of um, comments in the uh, about about your uh, how how that project is going for you in terms of using. Oh, I like it. I like it a lot. Okay. Uh, so here, here's the nice thing about um, about ozone, which was like a, a kind of a pleasant surprise. So the smallest uh, ozone unit that Ozotech sells is like I think the the, the 200 model, right? Um, it is so powerful that it can run literally anybody's tank. Like it's so powerful. I mean, short of like Andrew, right? But I mean, we run that thing on a 2,500-gallon system, and it does okay. Wow. Like, it's absurd. And so my, my, my friend, uh, Brandy, she just put that same unit on her tank, and she can't run it more than 10 minutes without topping out her ORP. Oh, wow. So she just runs it 10 minutes a day, and her ORP is you know, consistently at like 400 now. So besides incredible water clarity, what is the advantage of um, running ozone on, on a tank? So the, so the big obvious benefits would be um, the clarity, the lack of odor. Hmm. So, eh, okay, so ozone has a very particular smell. It's like this very dry, dusky uh, staticky smell. Okay. That's probably not great for you. You probably don't want to be smelling a lot of that. Right. But we actually have like an air, air sensor that we can detect if we have like dangerous levels of ozone at any given uh, spot. But if you're worried about like skimmate smell or just like that, you know, just gross tank smell, 
you don't have any of that anymore. Like you, when you when you walk into like my warehouse, uh, like the, the new building, we're running three ozone systems in there. You don't get like weird smells. I mean, unless somebody just like used the kitchen very recently or something, but like tank smell, no. So even when not. you're cleaning the skimmer out, you don't smell that uh, skimmate. Uh, only only because it, it just went down the drain and that that's kicking it up. Yeah. But like in day to day operation of a of a protein skimmer sitting there, you you would not smell the protein skimmer. Like there's no way. Well, like, I can't imagine. Um, all right. I want to try to keep, uh, get, get some questions in here from the, uh, some audience participation, some audience <laughs> participation. Uh, this is going back to the algae we were talking about before Brian cook, what fish and inverts do you find most effective for green hair algae? I have 180 gallon <clears throat> with green hair algae that I can't get to a manageable level. I'll have a tamini white tail tank, fox face snails and hermits. Yeah. So when, when it comes to, uh, dealing with hair algae, I wouldn't rely as much on herbivores because I think that most herbivores find it really unappetizing. Mm -hmm. So what you really want to do is probably get in there and just with like a toothbrush and siphon and polish it up as much as you can to get coralline algae growing. And, and you have a, a device that you have. Um... Okay. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's kind of just like a little uh, DIY hack job. But there is like a, you know, those like airless uh, cleaners. That's that's a kind of like a fan operated, looks like a little gun that you use for like your keyboard, mm -hmm. right? But it's but it's an air. It's like a. It doesn't have like a like a pressurized canister. It's like actually a little you know electric device. Well, those things come with all types of different little heads, right? So one of them is like a brush head, and you can just stick that onto a hose and then do siphoning with it. The, the attachment, not the electrical blower part, right? Just like the the brush siphon attachment. And you can just sit there and just make like circles and really polish up the rock. Because what you want to do is you want to get coralline algae growing because hair algae will have a much more difficult time growing on coralline. Right. Because the coralline itself wants to prevent other algae from growing on top of it. Uh, great bearded reef. Um... We're switching gears. Uh, Reef Bum is Than thinking of doing the big open house uh, outside cook open open house cookouts like pre pandemic in the future. Uh, unlikely, but not Im totally impossible. Um, not entirely impossible. <laughs> I saw I saw another question where somebody was asking whether you're going to let, let locals in, and so, uh, so I think people are, are knocking at the door there, Than. They, uh, they yeah, want to get yeah, in. For sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, guys, uh, we are accepting like shopping visits again. the The times are limited, though. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of it, is going to land on like Friday or the weekend. Mm. But it is possible to be let in the door now. <laughs> So the door is slightly ajar at this point. Yeah, so you'll have to email us at, uh, at, at, uh, at support at titlegardens.com and see if we can accommodate. Be the fountain, not a drain. Parties. That's the uh, quadruple exclamation point, or is that the uh, five exclamation points? I can't That's Brandy. That, that, she's the one with the, uh, with the ozone system that she leaves on for 10 minutes a day. Ah, uh, gotcha. I, I, I don't know. I'm scared. The ozone scares the crap out of me. They're, it scared uh, the crap out of me for, for, the, for the longest time, and it was just one of those things where... Uh, I just happened to be commenting on like Devin's live stream when he had like the Ozotech people on 
and 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 since they've like eased my mind about a lot of issues that I had, they've come over to my facility numerous times now. Um, actually, I believe that Andrew Sandler just replaced his old uh, ozone system with their like commercial ozone system. Mm. So like they they've been they've been very supportive and um, yeah, pretty much all of my my big concerns were not that big of a deal. You know, I have um, I have a um, so I, I have calcium reactor. So I got a couple of um, you know canisters of uh, carbon dioxide. Also, um, I ship with oxygen. So I have a um, um, high pressure you know canister of uh, oxygen. I'm a little scared just having those things around. Yeah, <laughs> you're trying to like little, <laughs> knock them over rockets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or uh, comments are about uh, uh, what's this? Jason uh, Larawan. I'll knock down a whole cow for the barbecue. Um, Great Bear to Reef Reef Bum. What about a Reef Bum and Great Bear to Reef Road Trip? I, I, I believe that's to uh, to see fan. Um, NSB Reefs. I'll bring the beer bong. Whoa, okay. <laughs> not that kind of party, guys. Not, not that kind of party. Not that kind of party. Yeah, we want to. This is a this is a family uh, you know show here. We want to uh, actually the, the, the technically though the last time we did did the barbecue thing like years and years ago there was alcohol. So it's not that it wasn't that type of party either. I guess. <laughs> Um, yeah, folks, keep um, keep dropping those questions into the uh, chat or, or comments, I, I should say. Also, um, so Than, let's get back to the uh, to the travels. So we talked about um, visiting Jake at uh, at Reef Builders. Mm-hmm. What um, what kind of stood out to you in that visit when you um, visited Jake there? So is a Jake lead, leading up to that trip was like telling me like how much he's like trying to like clean the tanks because he because he said that I would notice you know that was that was like super flattering, <laughs> but yeah when when we went when we got there um, yeah the tanks are, are, are really nice because you know he he is so into coral like guys you know, yes he he did it as a profession right but. You know, when the camera's not rolling, when he's not writing a blog or whatever, the guy was just singularly focused on coral. That's all he wanted to talk about. He didn't want to talk about industry drama. He didn't want to talk about um, anything going on in the world. He didn't want to talk about uh, business, nothing. All he wanted to talk about was aquariums and corals. (laughs) because <laughs> he just he just wanted to, to just to pick my brain about like x y and z you know just just like what what did i think about this what did i think about this and and his, his tanks were like wonderfully pristine so i i used a, maybe a couple of clips from his uh from my visit there but i thought that it would be in poor taste to to use those so I'm going to, at some point, I'm just going to like talk to, to his wife, Windsor. I'm like, I'm going to double check. I was like, do you mind if I use this in the future? But, because uh, I never actually did a video about my experience there. Right. Because of like, of the, you know, the, the, his tragic passing. So I never really revisited my, my, my thoughts of the aquariums. You know, it was more about a retrospective of, of my experiences with Jake. Right. So yeah, maybe maybe that's something that we can we can dive into more later on my channel when I actually, uh, you know, when I'm more comfortable about actually talking about that. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did did you um, when you visited the, uh, the the studio or you know I, I guess you mentioned the um, 
the heat and air exchange uh, system at uh, Andrew's place or, or the, uh, the, the geothermal um, at, at um, Andrew's place. But, but when you visited Jake, was, was there anything that uh, you, you, uh, you had seen there in terms of his setups that um, kind of piqued your interest and like, hmm, that's an interesting idea. Maybe that's something I might try in the, uh, in the future. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things. So first of all, there, there there's a couple of things that I saw there that I would never in a million years do. <laughs> so he doesn't use RO for salt water. He uses RO for his freshwater stuff. He just uses regular tap for his salt water stuff. And mm. I think his thinking there was like, who cares? It's all going to get mixed into salt anyway. And I'm like, yeah, because your water up here in Denver is clean. Like my yeah. water it from my well is 900 TDS. And when you mix salt water into it, the next day, all of the of the calcium precipitates out, all of it. So it's all white on every flat surface. You're like, no, like there, there's people out there, Jake, that need to run RO and, and do this. It's not just an esoteric thing that, you know, that, that they're getting scanned for. A lot of people really need this stuff. Um, so that was like just a little funny aside, but he does, he doesn't use RO. He didn't use RO for his saltwater tanks. Um, there was a brand of pump. Going back to my uh, Abyss thing, right? Yeah. So when I told him that, yeah, it's like I want to replace all of my clothes loops with Abyss and I need like all these pumps. He's like, he was horrified. Because, <laughs> you know, because it's, it, it's actually horrific. Yeah. But sure. he said, have you ever tried Deltec? And I'm and I was like, uh, I'm familiar with the brand, right? It's been around forever. It's German. I strangely, I, I I was just at Macna and I had met like the CEO. He had he had come over from Germany, and it's like you know what? That's that's really funny. I've never ever ever considered Deltec ever. It's just not a huge big name in the reef aquarium world in the states as it is in Europe. And he showed me like their uh, their Deltec eight like the, their DC pumps the E flows, and he said yeah it's basically like a baby Abyss and it's like a thousand dollars cheaper. And I'm like well damn it's okay like, yeah, I'll, I'll try a few of those <laughs> right. And I have one dumb quibble with the pump okay, it, it is purely uniquely a fan problem. It is not a Deltec problem in any way shape or form I don't think okay, those pumps are so outlandishly high performing. And so like that was one one idea that I got from him was like try these Deltec pumps. And I'm like, okay. It turns out they're super impressive. And and so we're we're using them in the greenhouse, but um, we're we're gonna be using a you know a biz still in the new building. What about um what about methods, you know, in terms of how he um you know he had some very, you know um distinct methods that he kind of liked to adhere to. He didn't like bare bottom tanks. Um, yeah. Well, we, so, okay. So we, I, I asked him about that and I got like a super short answer that was just like straight up condescending sort of thing. <laughs> it's just like, I was like, what, why, why do you like bare bottom? He's like, cause I like to grow coral and <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Right. But I mean, I say so I, I am so like not, polar when it comes to substrate choices um i could i could not care less if we had substrate or not everybody at my place is way more passionate about one versus the other 
for example, like most of the guys would prefer a bare bottom just for like cleaning purposes. Yeah. Okay. Which is hilarious because none of them clean it. I clean it. Right. <laughs> I'm usually the one doing like the, the scraping of the bottom. It's almost exclusively me. Uh, recently, we got one other person that he does that stuff now. So it's like the guys that are the, that are the most vocal about substrate issues don't deal with the substrate. Uh, Becca has put a substrate in her little like YouTube show tank, right? She touches that sand once a year tops. <laughs> I never I never see it getting disturbed. So it's not like you know like a huge um, uh, c- constraint as far as maintenance goes. But yeah, Jake, for example, is like all about no substrate, all bare bottom. But yeah, he was uh, the other thing that 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 did pique my interest is how much he was on the I need to dose nitrate and phosphate train. Like he said, once I started doing that, that was that was the secret ingredient, like the nitrate and phosphate. I added this, my corals blew up. And I'm like, I have high nitrate and phosphate. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> so, but, 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 in his, but in his systems, they were very, very low for both of those. And once he started to, to add that back in, he got a lot, a lot of success. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I never had dosed uh, nitrates and phosphates in my uh, you know, whole time keeping uh, reef tanks up until... Um, you know, the last uh, five or six years. And, um, you know, one tank, one system right now I'm doing it, and one system I'm not doing it. And it's the, uh, it's the system that I'm, I'm getting that kind of green cyano in the sand bed that I'm not doing it anymore because I was dosing a lot. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the sand and probably the rock perhaps absorbed some of that uh, phosphate and now it's, it's leaching out. Mm. So uh, a phosphate is something that perplexes me to a large degree. Because we've got one guy here, and he is just like insane about phosphate control. And I'm definitely on the other end of the spectrum. But he's just like, if we don't keep our phosphate at 0.05, our stuff isn't going to color up. I'm like, hmm, debatable. And on the other end, there, there were times where we had two parts per million of phosphate, and things were fine. Not even like no algae problems, no coral coloration problems, no problems whatsoever. The phosphates were two parts per million, not 0.2, two. So, <laughs> yeah. yikes! I can't get worked up about phosphate after the experiences that I've had. Like, what you know, the the, the thing that you know um, frustrates me about phosphate is actually getting an accurate reading of what the phosphate level is in the tank, you know, and, and I, I, I get frustrated by the, um, the, uh, the hobby grade test kits. And, and so I've been doing more ICP testing to try to, you know, see if there's any, uh, thing that I could kind of draw a parallel to what, you know, mm. potentially the test kits are saying versus the ICP and come up with some sort of factor. But I, I think that's, uh, that's something that frustrates me in terms of, um, trying to get an accurate reading of, of phosphate, not an accurate, just kind of, Know that you're not at zero. Yeah. So here's a couple things that that I was that I think on the subject of testing. Period. So I think hobby test hobby grade test kits a little suspicious, right? Um, but I don't know if, if I've, ICP is like the the end all be all either, because I think that there's there's a certain proponent or there's a certain perspective out there that this this technology was not made to work in salt water at all, never. And um, like the results that you're getting are um, unreliable at best, 
and so much of it is is like like an ICP machine is not just like a microwave oven that you just like you know put in one minute and you get like you know that perfect burrito. It's highly, highly, highly finicky. So yeah. if there's any mishandling of a sample, if there's any contamination of a sample, you're gonna get junk results. And uh, so like a lot of like serious business labs that are doing work for like the pharma industry, like a a highly trained um, like machine operator, they're very, very, very valuable skills. Like pharma will pay a lot for that skill set. So I don't I don't know how great ICP is in this industry yet. It is really nice to get that that printout and see everything. Um, but really, what I would want to see is um, something like a test that we could perform here locally. That's like a huge perk. But mm. I just want reference solutions for everything. So I just want to make sure that like when when we are doing our, our like weekly tests or whatever, sure, right? Let's just see what the numbers are and what they do. But if something is so out of line that we would actually want to make a um, like an impactful decision around it, right? So we need to control this thing because it's going sky high. We need to lower this. We need to raise this. Whatever that decision is. At that point, I want to make sure that the numbers that we're seeing are really those numbers. So now I want now I want reference solutions, right? Yeah, it makes sense. And if if we if the test kits are nailing reference solution numbers, then I can like better trust the the out the outlier number that I'm trying to fix at that point. Yeah, you you know you have to wonder in terms of ICP testing. You mentioned it would be great to have a local um, you know ICP um, you know. By, by you, but you have to wonder in terms of the, uh, you know, how the sample would degrade over time in transit. You know, what uh, what happens in that regard? You know, so if you've got, obviously, when you draw a sample of uh, water from a tank, there's going to be some bacteria in that sample, right? Does a biofilm build up on the sample tube on the inside? And does that um, bacteria grow in transit? And does that impact uh, some of the elements that the ICP is measuring? Yeah, and I've even heard that, like, certain... Um certain metals are so reactive that uh, just the process of um, delivering the the liquid sample into the machine, all of that particular metal could be bound up just in the tubing that's used. And so you might actually be uh, positive for a certain, um, this is by the way, super like just super conversational third party stuff i don't know okay but apparently handling issues is a thing and you might have heavy metals in your water and not have it show up on icp hmm. like the machine can pick it up but because of handling issues it never makes it into the machine hmm. and so when you have like some weird sps deaths and stuff like that it is time to check if, if there's like exposed magnets and stuff because it could be heavy metals that's not showing up on any test kit. Good point. Um, so I wanted to incorporate a question from a um, from a viewer that was actually was uh, submitted before the uh, live stream here, Than. It's actually Andy uh, Boma again who um, wanted to ask this question. I, I, he actually had a couple of questions for you. One, um, we'll get back to this in terms of the uh, RTN STN with uh, with SPS, but. Um, Going back to the phosphate, you mentioned uh, phosphate in, in terms of uh, having very high phosphate. 
you know, and, and so Andy, you know, recall that you did have some pretty high um, phosphate, like in the one to two part per million range, and, and used to say that uh, you didn't think the phosphates mattered that much. But um, I guess uh, he said that was the time around Rich Ross started saying the same thing, and Wilwog Corals also had a large display tank with high phosphates. So now you're, uh, you're right, you're running your uh, systems at about 0 0.05, and, uh, you know, you're recommending keeping them, uh, I guess, well, your person is, uh, is, loves that, uh, that range. So, um, yeah, that's, that's more him than me. <laughs> what, um, so the question is, you know, what changed at the coral farm there that convinced you to run the phosphates at the lower levels? Uh, I think it's actually my apathy towards it. If somebody is going to be like that, um, you know, that much of an advocate for it and I kind of don't care. Sure. Let's do that. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. I think the only thing where, where I kind of like put my foot down a little bit more is like, look, we need to chill out on the GFO because because uh, sometimes like uh, like I'll notice certain LPS, sometimes Ghanis, sometimes Micromusa, they look extra upset. And I am kind of blaming the GFO. Right. Which might be completely off base, but sometimes like that pursuit of like the low phosphate when we're running like these aggressive things to like scrub that out when I think it's when I think it's kind of unnecessary. Like that's that's the sort of stuff that where I would give some pushback on that. But the but the trying to lower it overall. Sure. I don't really care. Oh, you want to rinse the food out a little bit better. Sure. I don't care. You want to cut down a little bit on the nori. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> It's 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 fine, it's fine. There there's there's a huge range where you can be highly successful, and yeah, if you want to make the effort to do that, go go crazy. How, how did you guys get the phosphate? I mean, that's all very high level of phosphate. How did you get it down to the 0.05 you know type of range? What uh, was... It was mainly water changes in GFO over the course of like years, slowly, right. just chipping away at it. Yep. So um, the other part of Andy's um, question, or actually it's a, a whole separate topic, but uh, I mentioned RTN, STN, and, and we've talked about this on the, uh, on the live stream before. Um, with, with the, I think we, we might have talked about it with you, Than, the last time I had you on about a year ago, and I've also uh, had some recent conversation with some other guests about it. But um, coral disease, right? So if you get RTN and STN, um, there's a lot of unknowns, right, with that stuff. Brown jelly disease. Have have um, how do you guys typically handle that sort of thing? If you see something like an event like that going on, and it's not just one or two corals, but it seems to be like a series of um, you know, uh, one coral is slowly uh, you know bleaching out, or one overnight bleaches out. How how, how do you guys handle that sort of thing in terms of treatment? So that's a, that's a super like perplexing problem. Yeah. That that, that happens, and I was just talking to one of my friends, and he has like a 1,000-gallon uh, aquarium that's absolutely gorgeous. It is filled to the rim with like amazing acros. And he's like saying that, yeah, had some random die-offs, like, like trouble in paradise, right? Just why are you dead? And that happens all the time with, with acro keepers. At the coral farm... Uh, we can, we always just like the, my, my like mental hierarchy as like, right. What, what are the first things that might be a problem? Is there a pest issue? Right. Cause if there's something actively eating the coral, it's probably not going to survive. Right. Right. 
Um, so immediately think, okay, pest first, because with, but before like, oh, let's check the water chemistry and everything. Like, make sure nothing is actively eating the coral. Sometimes that thing is a fish you put in there that you just trusted, like a flame angel, and it's like, but I've never seen it attack anything. Yeah, trust me, it's eating your acros, uh, like that sort of thing, right? Secondary to that, because I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that serious business SPS keepers, their calcium, alkaline, magnesium, nitrate, phosphate is not going to be the outlying thing. And chances are, even if it was a, a value that's too high or too low, that's still probably not killing your acros. But pests certainly will. Fish certainly will. Uh, the next step uh, below that, I would look at perhaps heavy metals. Especially when you see a normally indestructible coral die. Like hmm. when you see a stylophora colony die overnight. That's not a good sign. That's really weird. Yeah. Right. That's, that's super, that's super bad. weird. Yeah. And we, we had that happen. It's like, okay, time to check for <laughs> copper in the system. That sort of level of uh, th this isn't right. And sure enough, we found probably like eight different magnets that were exposed to water mm, wow that do something bad right <laughs> or like a pump that needed maintenance to the point that it was like leaching rust into the water that's probably not great things like that <clears throat> last thing below that so we're, well, i guess we're in the fourth little criteria worth like looking at is like bacterial issues and bacteria issues especially that uh that happen after you've like done something with detritus like kicked up a lot of detritus and it resettles because I was. That's why I'm nervous going, about you snaking your pipes there. Uh, yeah, we, we would basically run that all through like filter socks and stuff. Gotcha. Just micron all of that up. Like, yeah, aggressively micron all that away. It would hopefully theoretically not make it back. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers, right? <laughs> um, but one time we had done some maintenance and I saw some detritus collect on like some larger acros. And when you have detritus collect in the middle of an acro, that's not great, you know? So I actually took a turkey baster and I was blowing off the detritus from the acro colonies. Next day, four randomly scattered, you know, colonies, dead. Ooh. And I'm wondering, it's like, well, is it just like some this bacteria transfer from detritus settling somewhere else? And that makes me want to do like go and take extreme action. You know, like um, I, I want to take all those acros out, dip everything in like Cipro and iodine and and Chemiclean, which I believe is erythromycin. Yeah. And just give it like a, at least a short bath to try to like knock down. Uh, I think it's what Acrobacter is the yeah. bacteria that's, that's a pathogen. That yeah, just to see if if it's like sitting like on any of the colonies, zap that. Then while all of those are dipping in a separate container, polish that tank clean. You know, like drain it, get all the fish out, <laughs> scrape it down, hydrogen peroxide the whole thing, reintroduce everything, turn the water back on. Like that's the sort of maintenance that I would look, that I would be looking to do if I thought it was a bacteria issue. Yeah, I um, so I had Chris Meckley on, and, and we talked a lot about um, the use of oxalinic acid, and um, as a uh, treatment against uh, bacterial infections, and and um, <laughs> so I've gotten a lot of people to reach out to me, ask me about the oxalinic acid treatment, but um, I always, uh, you know, 
the first things I say to people about the uh, the treatment is that uh, what what you said, Than, which is um, you know rule out all the uh, the uh, the things that you would you know think might potentially be the cause of it uh, initially, which are pests. Um, is it heavy metals or you know rusty magnets? Uh, I always suggest doing ICP tests and and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I um, I did hit one of my systems with oxalinic acid. I had some random RTN STN events going on for a few months, and and they started to kind of like happen more frequently. And then I did an in tank treatment, and this is a thriving you know SPS dominant uh, tank. And uh, you know, knock on wood, it's been three four months, and and those episodes have. Uh, um, stopped. So, um, and I, I did a pre post, um, aquabiomics, uh, test. I did a, um, you know, the, the pre-test showed the presence. Um, uh, and I'm assuming Andy is still watching the, uh, the live stream here. I can't remember the, um, the, the, uh, the name of the, um, the bacteria that I had that was very high before I, uh, treated the tank with oxalic acid, but that, that, uh, bacteria dropped a lot. Um, you know, after the uh, the treatment, it's still in the system, but obviously it's not at the levels where. It's so, what's the treatment um, methodology for that? Because I'm I'm really unfamiliar. It's um it's very similar to to ChemiClean. So you're okay. you're basically using a certain amount of the oxalic acid. Oxalic acid is um my understanding it's very similar to Cipro. And hmm. you're using a certain amount of um you know grams per gallons in your system and so it was three different treatments that um you know i had done to the tank and basically turn the skimmer off you take activated carbon offline um if you're using uv you take that offline as well you do a treatment um you let it uh, go for uh, 24 hours and then um you put all that stuff back online well yeah you do the treatment for 24 hours put the um UV activated carbon skimmer back online for 24 hours. Hit it a second time, um, repeat and do it a third time. And okay. yeah, as micro antimicrobial properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a um, it's actually something that um, people use to treat disease in koi. So it's a uh, hmm. it's a koi antibiotic uh, medication. Interesting, but um, yeah, so. Have you ever thought about, um, or do you guys do anything for corals that come into the uh, facility there in terms of kind of uh, doing bacterial dips to prevent any of these uh, bad bacteria from getting into your systems? Is that something that you've um, done in the past or have thought about doing? Not bacteria specifically. We do um, like mainly like pest control dips on on coral intake. But the other thing is we don't do a lot of coral intake. It's, I mean, last... Last year, I was an admittedly bad customer <laughs> for a lot of my suppliers. Like we, we were so uh, we were so into our, our capital improvement projects and stuff like that that almost all of the budget went towards that, and we had like a, we had the tiniest coral acquisition uh, like figure at the end of the year. It's like it's absurdly small for 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 a place of our size. Absurdly wow. small. I know I know places that would spend more than that in a week, like that level of tiny. The, and we just farmed everything, and uh, yeah, so we don't we don't do like massive intake. We don't gotcha. import. Yeah, so usually like anything we get has already been through an importer. I, I believe they dip. 
they didn't used to, but I yeah. think they do now. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, the dipping only does so much, but, you know, we, we try to stay on top of that. Um, Andy Bowman. Uh, thank you. Um, all right. So he, uh, he chimed in with the information I was looking for. So Andy says, after Keith treated uh, Arcobacter and Shemia, am I pronouncing that correctly, levels were reduced by a factor of 10. Because I shared my results with uh, with Andy, um, yeah. So that was um, that was a very interesting um, result of that. And um, what else did I? Would you keep doing it? Would just would just keep so doing it forever? So that's that's something I think that um, you wouldn't want to do that all the time. I think if you do it every um, several months or six months or whatever, if you do it like once a month, I think that's a bad thing because then you could build up. Just get the exactly. super bugs. They would be uh, resistant mm. to the antibiotics at some point in time down the road. So, mm. um, yes, that's um, that's the whole thing. I guess you got to work be be worried about that. Um, other comments and questions I see here. Um, random fact, Chris: oxalic acid is used in beekeeping to kill mites. You learn something new hmm. every day. <laughs> I'm always so uh, I, I'm always so uh, slow on the uptake of trying something new. I need to have like a whole bunch of people advocate for it first, and then I'll give it a try. So for for the longest time, I, I've been like a very early adopter of a lot of things. But uh, I, was, I was having a conversation with somebody about about this, and he's like, "Yeah, there's like no benefit at the commercial level to be the early adopter yeah. of anything. There's no first mover advantage. There's just a bunch of mistakes <laughs> that get made. It's not other people." You know, just to, to to run their faces into a brick wall for years before it gets like figured out. You know that sort of thing. So, are you're not a uh, an experimenter at this point? I, I'm really not experimental at all. Like I, I, I am a problem solver though. Like when I'm when I'm seeing uh, seeing issues, I try. But I do it more on the engineering side, not on the chemistry side. Like ideally. Uh, if there's an engineering solution to some of this, I want to do that. So, for example, uh, I want to be able to do hard resets on these systems and make that process easy. So, like 300 gallon, like it, my uh, my tanks are roughly between three to 500 gallons each. Yeah. I want to be able to hard reset one of those a day, Whoa. no problem. Wow. Okay. And, and, and be easy, like not, not not just be like, oh my gosh, this is like this monumental task. It's like, no, it's not a big deal. One person could do it. Um, so speaking of experiments and, and changing methods and whatnot, I'm, I'm assuming over time you have changed some of the things you do in terms of tending to a reef tank. Is there anything that you've adopted that uh, you said, nah, that's not for me after uh, doing it for a while? And uh, if and if so, yeah. why? Yeah. So... Again, uh, giving engineering stuff a try. Uh, I've, I think I've used every single type of automatic tester. I think I, I think I've run the entire gamut. Like I, I've used them all. Right. Uh, I stopped using all of them because automation. Um, on that scale, when we have so many different systems, it became a thing where all of these different auto testers were so needy for attention 
and maintenance, and there's always some reason why they couldn't perform a test, or it was out of reagent, or it needs to be to have some tube looked at. Something was always up, right? Or it's just reading a ridiculous number. It's like, well, that needs to be calibrated. When you have like 10 of these units, let's say, that's somebody's full-time yeah. job now that has to go babysit all of the automation that was supposed to free up all your time. So that is something I no longer mess with. No more, no more automated, uh, no, no more automated testers. So, again, perfectly fine for like a single home aquarium. Great, go crazy. You'll probably love it, but at scale, eh, didn't, <laughs> didn't work, out. work out. Yeah, no. There's been some stuff that I've uh, adopted, and then just uh, it's like, nah, eh, not for me. Um, yeah. Rob upstate New, upstate New York, thank you so much for that super chat comments. Another great chat. Very appreciate that, Rob. Um, biggest fears in terms of running your farm? Biggest fear? Hmm. That the federal government makes it illegal to own <laughs> coral. That's, that that's number suck. one. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do something very different from now on. <laughs> that would, uh, that would suck. Greatest satisfaction in terms of what you're doing right now? Um, greatest satisfaction. I think it's... The, the greatest satisfaction has been this new building because there was a time where uh, I had like an, an idea of what could be possible on this property. And it was like pie-in-the-sky dream stuff, Okay. The reality that I live every day at this new building is way better than my wildest dreams nice. leading up to it. It is so much nicer in like in the flesh, you know, like <laughs> tangibly it's like the, it's real every single day. And it's like, this is way better than I could have ever possibly expected. And it's getting better, which is kind nice. of crazy. Uh, just a couple of, uh, Interesting comment. Reef the Sea Forever. I am the controller. Bert Minshew, I am the controller. Those are uh, Jake Adams quotes there. So, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, uh, I am in the same camp. Um, yes, rest in peace, Jake Adams. Um, I am in the same camp. I, um, I started kind of like getting into the automation thing and then I stopped. I, I dabbled. If it was, if it was a much more, um, I guess like super turnkey robust thing, which is like, oh, don't worry about it. We just got it. It's like it's like a it's like a mercury thermometer sitting on your wall. Like that thing will never fail you, right? That sort of thing. Fine, but no. When it when it comes to like a lot of these uh, like million moving parts sort of things that has to hit a certain price point, uh, things yeah. could go wrong. Um, reagents like reagent, uh, it, it's expired now. It's giving you bad yeah. numbers. Bad right. probe happens yeah. all the time. Automatic water changes scare the crap out of me. Hmm. But um, you know, some people swear by them. It's like, was it just like the, the the two dosing pumps? Yeah. I just um, I don't know. I, I just feel like that that can um, there, there's there's too many uh, trip wires in that uh, equation for me. But um, call me old school. Could be engineered yeah. around, right? Oh yeah, for sure. If you wanted to to double 
the cost of it. You could engineer in a lot of safeguards if you wanted to. Yeah, but the same thing with like, uh, you know, ALK monitors slash controllers. You know, they've got a lot of safeguards in there too in terms of controlling. But um, I just, um, I like to be, uh, do that stuff myself. Yeah, we do it manually. Yeah. So I, I get it. All right, Dan. Well, listen, man, this, is, uh, this has been a great uh, chat as, as always. Any, uh, any final words that you would like to pass along to the folks out there watching tonight? Uh, check out my website and buy coral. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, my, my other question was, anything you want to plug? <laughs> oh, yeah, let's, let's plug uh, Let's plug some, some things yeah. that are going on. Okay, so let's see. I'm going to be, uh, officially, I'm going to be going to Aquashella, Dallas. I will be going to Reefstock. Come come listen to my TED I'll, Talk. I'll be there. At I'll be there. <laughs> nice. Uh, what else is going on? Um, actually, Andrew and his crew are coming over to, to come check out Title Garden, so you know, stay tuned for on his channel for that. Um, like Later this year, I might be doing something with BRS on their oh, channel, cool. so we can hang out with the BRS folks. Uh, and, uh, there's a reef to reef live sale that we're doing this Saturday. So if you want to, if you want to spend some money on some title gardens, corals, you can hang out with us on reef to reef this Saturday. Cool. <laughs> Plug enough yeah, stuff. Yeah. Plug the whole awesome. calendar. Yeah, for sure. All right, Dan. Well, listen, man, thanks again for, uh, for being on. I really uh, appreciate it. I know all the folks out there tuning in, um, appreciate it as well. So uh, thank you uh, again, Than, for being on the live stream. Also, I want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for being sponsors of the live stream and supporting the show. Also, I want to thank all you folks out there for tuning in and watching. Also, a big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator, as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so, so important to this hobby. Additionally, I want to give a shout-out to Cornbread custom signs for this awesome sign behind me. It's a uh, it's a custom wooden uh, handcrafted sign. It's awesome work of art. Check them out on Instagram and on the web at cornbreadcustoms.com. <clears throat> Finally, I want to let you know that all episodes of Wrap on the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrapping with Reef Bum live stream will be Next Thursday, February 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, my guest will be Chris Cap from Aquatic Art Inc., which is an LFS in Denver, Colorado area. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, go to reefbum.com under the YouTube section. Until then, be safe, and we will see you next time. Adios.